From the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program at Harvard Law School, I'm Sarah Del Nido Budish. And I'm Neil McGarrigan. This is Thanks for Listening, a podcast about bridging the political divide in America. On this episode, we're going to take a look at social media and the role that social media can play in amplifying or perpetuating partisan divides that we feel in our everyday lives, whether that's on campus, uh, in our hometown, at work, sometimes even in our own families. And it feels to us particularly timely. As we're recording, the COVID-19 virus is dramatically changing daily life in this country and around the globe. And in addition to the the very real and um, direct health effects and loss of life that are being felt by so many people and the anxiety and stress and grief that go along with it, a lot of us are also struggling just with the day-to-day effects of sheltering in place and social distancing and isolation. So out of necessity, a lot of people are turning more completely and more fully toward the internet and it's many and, and varied virtual platforms for helping people stay connected, whether that's for work or socially. And so it struck us that digging into the subject of online divides might be even more pressing now than ever. As you'll hear from our guests on today's episode, a downside of social media is the way it can amplify our natural tendencies to sort ourselves into groups of like-minded people. And listeners are probably quite familiar with this, and you'll hear a lot more about it in today's episode. And as COVID-19 drives us increasingly to virtual platforms, these concerns become even more urgent. Will the echo chambers that social media tends to foster become more pronounced? Or does the reality of engaging even more with each other online create opportunities to defeat that echo chamber effect? And if so, how do we do that? In this episode, we'll be starting to take on these very big questions. With our guest, we take a look at some of the conditions that have enabled social media to emphasize divides leading up to the present moment, and a promising project involving youth in social media. Um, And just a couple quick notes about this episode. Uh, As you can probably hear, we're recording this part of the show from outside of our usual spots in the studio. Um, But as so many people are doing these days, Sarah and I are recording this part of the show from our respective homes. For the interview you're about to hear excerpts of, we were actually in the studio and our guest joined us by Zoom. So that part will sound familiar to listeners, but you'll also be able to tell. You'll notice Sarah and I are going to be jumping back and forth between that recorded interview and this segment that we're recording from our homes. So without further ado, our guest in this episode is a researcher, designer, and digital strategist who studies online dialogue and digital communication. Andres Bombana Birmudas is a professor of communication at Javeriana University, a research associate at the Rosario University's Center for Internet and Society, and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School. He's currently based in Bogota, Colombia, where he teaches and researches, among other things, youth media practices and literacies and digital inclusion. Oh, thank you for your invitation, uh, Neil and Sarah. Uh, I am uh, glad to be uh, part of this podcast and share some of my research and opinions and uh, hopes and criticisms of social media platforms. Yes, I want to dive into all of those things. So I guess just to start with, um, kind of walk us back. What makes it challenging to engage in constructive dialogue on social media? Because, I mean, it's it's hard right, in any realm of life, it can be hard to talk about politics. Um, how does social media contribute to that difficulty and, and contribute to polarization? Yeah, so uh, just to start with a kind of brief notion of social media, it's important to know that uh, um, these spaces uh, are complex technical systems uh, that are not only mediated by technology, but also by humans. So. It's a, it's a complex interaction that uh, humans and technology uh, uh, are creating. Um, and 
as they create these spaces for dialogue, for sharing information, for sharing content, the, the, there are some dynamics that emerge just by the way that social dynamics in, uh, emerge in real life, in communities. Uh, in these spaces online, uh, those dynamics also emerge. And some of those dynamics are precisely the ones related uh, to polarization, to tribalism, to um, kind of fragmentation. Uh, and those dynamics are embedded in human nature and human community. So, so it's uh, social social media as they create uh, these spaces mediated with technology. Some of the features of technology emphasize or, or have affordances that uh, make people to to become engaged in dialogues that are a little bit fragmented and. Uh, for instance, uh, there are like social phenomena uh, that have been studied uh, by sociologists, for instance, called homophily, where communities that have the same beliefs, the same values, get together and uh, they become not as diverse as we want for productive dialogue, right? They become more homogenous and uh, the, uh, when, when these spaces start to interact and share only one point of view uh, and share only one one kind of values um, they can uh, certainly promote certain kind of uh, mm, kind of uh, polarized views and sometimes can even become radicalized views because uh, the dynamics that uh, emerge here encourage mm, like the sharing of the same kind of information or the say the sharing of the same kind of points of view. So and, and that so, sounds Andres like a dynamic that that um, maybe is one of these that you're talking about is more human nature rather than simply limited to to social media. Exactly, and that's that's something that we have to take into account. We cannot blame just technology for what is going on in the current political environment and political dialogue, but it's uh, uh, somehow the way that. Uh, the, the evolution of this complex uh, socio-technical system ha has happened, ha has created a certain kind of, um, kind of, um, I would I would call it have they have amplified somehow the the fragmentation and the polarization. But it's something that is in human nature, and as technology evolves and as human also start to use the technology, they they have somehow push those affordances and those uh, technological features to to um, to a point where where people has started to talk about like uh, echo chambers for instance and these phenomenons uh, this phenomena that 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 happens uh, in uh, in these social technical systems when you only have one group of people sharing certain kind of information certain kind of points of view uh, certain kind of speech and uh, as you become um, more uh, homogeneous in in the dialogue that you that you have, uh, and you only start to hear one point of view, so it's also easier to uh, become more radicalized and more extreme uh, in the kind of opinions that that you have. Well, and, uh, and you talked about amplification too, Andres. Um, yes, and I think that's something a lot of us have felt. Uh, in digital platforms and observed ourselves, or at least it feels amplified. Is is there something about the digital platform itself that um, you know takes this phenomenon you're talking about? Echo chambers, of course, we're, we're familiar with that term, and it's been 
I, th- I think we've experienced them, a lot of us anyway. Um, w- why is it feel more pronounced or amplified on, on a, in a digital forum or format or social media? What, what's, what is it about the, the digital landscape that, that makes it so amplified? So, so because uh, the way that uh, the social media platforms evolved based on network on co- network computers, right, and and uh, now also network phones because our phones have computers inside, uh, it privileges certain kind of dynamics for spreading information in a network way. Uh, before, in the past, when we have like the printing press or radio or, or film or television, uh, the model of communication was based on, on broadcast model and it was uh, one central station broadcasting to many. And with the social media ecosystem and, and these uh, social technical systems based on the internet, what we have is a model of many to many many to many broadcasters, let's say, where anybody can create a message, can can modify a picture, can share a video, uh, and it can share it to many uh, users that are connected to their networks. Uh, so is the network effects uh, that uh, the current internet and social media that are on the top of the internet create allows for a, an amplification that uh, was not possible before. So today, uh, a post of a everyday person and ordinary uh, women or, or ordinary men can reach uh, um, millions of people just by the dynamics of this network effect. So uh, it's easier to to distribute the message, the message to amplify it, and to also allow uh, reshares, recirculation. Is 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 way. Uh, wider than before. Yeah, the, the many-to-many thing is interesting. It's an interesting way to, to capture it. And that kind of gets to, to my next question, which was going to be sort of why social media and digital platforms have such a big impact. Because if we think about something like Twitter or Facebook, not that those are the only social media uh, platforms, but you know, only a portion of the population is on those platforms. It's not like every person who has an interest in or is engaged in politics is a member. And and what I hear you saying is that this network effect is one of the reasons why those platforms have such a disproportionate impact. Definitely. Um... The, net, the network effects occur at many levels now because also like uh, is uh, the the social media platforms are also um, embedded in a wider kind of uh, media ecosystem, right? Uh, where we have uh, not only uh, social media isolated from television or radio or cinema or uh, television, right? They they work together and those older media are also involved in the new social media dynamics. So, so what is interesting in, in that regard that even if not everybody is on social media and even in, in countries where there, there is a lot of uh, digital device regarding inter- the internet connectivity, we, we see the effects of the network effect and the effects of the social media amplification is because what is this cause in these in these spaces in these online spaces uh, is also being picked and uh, somehow shaping the agenda that is uh, being developed in in newspapers in television channels uh, in magazines and and even in films so it's uh, the the ecosystem is is way wider than social media but social media are are very um vibrant in the way that they discuss the topics there is a lot of uh, also like some 
part of the success of these social media is the way that they can uh, measure engagement, something that has really driven the development of, uh, of these platforms and the, the, their economic success. Digital economy uh, and the attention economy are, are based on these uh, trends that can be monitored in real time, can be uh, analyzed uh, by algorithms, and it, they can also be stored and, uh, uh, and analyzed later. So, Neil, stepping back from the interview for a minute, Andres is describing a really intricate sort of fabric that social media feeds into that touches on social, political, and economic factors. We already naturally sort ourselves into tribes, and this tendency is amplified by the ability to use social media to very easily and very quickly seek out more like-minded people. We can, in effect, grow and strengthen our tribes in ways that we couldn't before the internet economy. And by growing more dependent on our online tribe, I wonder if we insulate ourselves more and more from the real people around us who might offer different perspectives and different ideas, different backgrounds, views. Um, and there's also a structural piece here too, right? The media platforms depend on clicks for their advertising revenue. So they have a commercial interest in tracking and measuring user engagement. Well, right. And then when you factor on top of that, um, the traditional media actually pick up and distribute social media posts and content. Um, and, you know, think of the celebrity, celebrity Twitter feed that gets um, picked up and becomes covered news somehow, um, or the president's Twitter feed getting reprinted directly in the mainstream media so that even people who aren't on social media themselves are exposed to the content that comes from social media. And sometimes it's quite, quite polarized. And to take just one example that's uh, in, the, in the news currently, the New York Times has been running a story about how Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's a key member of the White House's coronavirus task force, um, has become what the, the paper calls, quote, a target of the far right, who faces a torrent of claims that he's part of a conspiracy to undermine the president. Um, and the article then goes on to link this torrent to a handful of Twitter and Facebook accounts and describes some of the posts as being shared hundreds of times and you know, liked by thousands. And this is not to judge one way or another with the significance of the posts or their importance or relevance, but to say that by any measure, what they're talking about is a very small corner of the internet where those opinions resided. And then boom, you know, it gets covered by the New York Times and it instantly has an international distribution on a mainstream platform. Right. So this example makes it easy to see how traditional media are part of this media ecosystem that pulls in and amplifies partisan social media. And it's effectively a double dose of partisanship, actually, because not only does an opinion get lifted from relative obscurity to national prominence, it also gets portrayed in a way that conjures up a clear image of the enemy, um, further driving kind of a wedge. Some of the major platforms are actually experimenting with small steps, tweaks around the edges to address this problem of hyperpolarization. So for instance, Facebook added multiple emoticons to augment the pure like-based model. Instagram has moved away from likes altogether. Facebook and Twitter have policies that seek to bar um, user anonymity. So query how effective any of that has been um, at reducing polarization. However, there have been some efforts focused on user education and also even alternative social media platforms that may offer some hope that it's possible to depolarize social media and make it constructive. Here's Andres again. More towards the educational side, these platforms are also doing a lot of efforts uh, trying to educate their users and their publics because we, we haven't mentioned, but the issue of the human uh, the human education or whatever we have learned is also 
crucial uh, for their interaction and for the formation of echo chambers. If, if platforms try to educate their users to kind of socialize community guidelines, ethics, and make people aware of the impact that whatever they are doing there can have in society can also help. So there is a lot of uh, initiatives taken on, on those platforms to socialize their community guidelines, to make clear kind of uh, not only terms of services, but more like on the side of the norms, community norms that, that are developed on social media. At the end, these social media are, are kind of live communities and public. So, so that also is related to the education and the values and the ethics that, that users have when they interact there. There is also a human, uh, the, the human activity in the equation of, of social media and, and echo chambers is important. Yeah, I mean the the notion of community guidelines and and norms uh, certainly resonates with uh, what we've talked about on this um, podcast before in terms of uh, live spaces and how you set norms for live spaces and what some of those norms might be. So so tell us more about that. And, and in particular, um, we know you've done a lot of work with one um, particular platform called Scratch, which is meant for children and youth. And um, you know, the notion of children and youth engaging online might strike like some parents as quite scary, but this has actually turned out to be a really great and safe space for children. So tell us about the platform and, and kind of how it works. Yes, I, I, in the research I have done in, in the U.S. particularly when I was uh, doing my postdoc at the Berman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, I was part of this project called Coding for All, and it was a collaboration between the Media Lab, the Berman Klein Center, and the Digital Media and Learning Hub at the University of California, Irvine. And we were studying some of these youth-driven platforms uh, who are creating like innovative approaches to community uh, making, to community guidelines, to moderation, and to the overall governance of online spaces. So among these platforms, uh, I, I had the opportunity to, to study a Scratch. That is, uh, this platform developed um, in the Media Lab, uh, started in 2017, and it has grown to have millions of users, millions of kids around the world uh, who engage in um, the production of videos, uh, games, uh, <clears throat> interactive uh, multimedia projects, and also commenting into each other. So it's a platform where people can post whatever they create, they can circulate it, they can remix it, and they can comment into each other projects. Um, this platform is kind of exemplary in the way that it has empowered youth and it has provided a lot of agency to them. Um, of course, this topic of youth empowerment and agency on online and on social media is controversial because as, as, as you mentioned, Sarah, there are like two, 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 two perspectives on it. One is the, that uh, online spaces are very dangerous, uh, full of cyberbullying and harassment and, you know, like predators. And so it's better that the youth don't engage there. That's one notion. And parents are have good reasons to worry about what is what they children are doing online but there is also another another kind of perspective and approach that is oh no the the social media spaces and the internet spaces uh, are empowering youth and encouraging encouraging them to 
to exercise their agency and to create, to communicate, to, to socialize, to organize, to build communities. And this platform Scratch is on that side of the spectrum that is very positive and very hopeful uh, about what youth can do online. And particularly, so this platform also grew fast. As I just mentioned, they reached millions of users around the world. They also confronted a lot of uh, the problems that emerge on, on these online spaces and online communities. But they, they have designed and experimented with a, with a governance structure that, that ha has allowed them to, to thrive and to create a space that is safe, that is kind, that is, is generative, where, where youth can empower themselves and develop projects, talk to each other, and even discuss different kind of topics, topics that are kind of tough sometimes as diversity, sexual orientation, religion, in a way that is productive and positive. And um, uh, just to... Well, and can, so can I just yeah. ask a question? Is, is part of the way they've been able to make that possible by establishing community norms, community guidelines for, for users to live by and, and maybe sort of patrol their own speech, but, but also sort of patrol the way and, 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 I don't know, pay attention to the way others are engaging on the space? Exactly. That's and, that's that's part of the what they have done. And how, how so if if you can speak to it in your research were you able to tell how they made it successful because it sounds like a great idea but with millions of users for example how, how does the project approach the problem of 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 getting buy-in from from people um, and making those community norms meaningful? Yes. So it's a it's a combination of of things, right? Uh, because uh, one one on the one hand is of course the community guidelines that they have created, and not only created a community guidelines, but also uh, supporting community engagement through the adoption and championing of those clear core values. Uh, that's one side. The other side is establishing a moderation scheme in which both adult moderators and community members actively monitor the platform with the help of automated software filters. So here we see an example of how the problem of uh, social media polarization can, can be solved. And why is hope? It's because if you develop strategies that um, kind of intervene the technical aspects of the system, the, the technical affordances, and combine them with uh, the building of a community that is based on clear guidelines and promote uh, the, the users to, to promote those guidelines, to engage them, to, to actually uh, believe on them, uh, then you can create a, a healthy community. Um, of course, this is a huge effort. You need a team uh, of many moderators. Uh, actually, uh, I study the, the moderation in the English-speaking community of Scratch. They have other languages as well, but I didn't study them. Uh, and for instance, they have 16 moderators. You say 16? 16, yeah. yeah. And uh, who are actively uh, monitoring the conversations, the projects that are posted on the platform. They also have a, a, a technical system that automatically detects language, inappropriate language, or inappropriate projects uh, and flags them. So they, they can also see not, they can 
see the the reports from the automated system these moderators and they can also like see the 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 reports from the users because the users can also flag projects and flag content that violates the community guidelines um when they see that they they take different uh, approaches to talk with the users who are not following the community guidelines they talk to each other they try to kind of engage in dialogue as uh, First of all, they 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 they, they mention the community guidelines. They send reminders about them. They ask questions about are you following the community guidelines and so forth. And if if the the, the users continue to to violate the violate the norm, so then they they will ban it, right? But first, they try to to dialogue with it uh, uh, with the user and and come to terms and explain um, maybe it's, it's worth mentioning that also these guidelines that they have designed are, are short uh, they are not like a, a terms of service that it takes hours to <laughs> you scroll to through and then hit accept yeah, and yeah exactly it's not like that it's very simple they for instance they have six simple Oh, not simple, but short guiding principles. One is to be respectful. Other one is to be constructive. Other one is to share. Other one is to keep personal information private. Other one is to be honest. And the sixth is uh, to help keep the site friendly. So for instance, this issue of friendship is very important for, for the community there. They also include, uh, for instance, something in their community guidelines that is called uh, Kind of a statement of, of purpose of a scratch that is that is a scratch welcomes people people of all ages races ethnicities religions abilities sexual orientation and genders identities so as you can see is uh, they are like short easy to understand for a for a children or a youth uh, and um, and they have been through this other strategy of uh, of engaging the community in, in kind of the adoption of the guidelines become kind of uh, interiorized by the community. So you see many of the projects, videos, uh, games, uh, audiovisual, multimedia uh, presentations that, that these kids and children are posting on the platforms are about the community guidelines. So they are, they are talking about the community guidelines inside the community. It's not only like something that is just just like uh, guidelines in in Marvel, right? That you read, but they also appropriate them. They use it in their projects, and it needs to be something that is part of their everyday activities there. So Neil, if you go to Scratch, if you visit the site, it's really cool. You'll see projects about everything from sexual orientation to religion to now COVID-19. Um, this is a site where young people, primarily ages 8 through 16, can learn to code and code interactive stories, games, and animations about topics that are important to them, and then share them with one another and comment on each other's work. So it is social media in kind of a broader sense. People use their creations as the vehicles to engage about a huge variety of topics. So they're creating these individual pieces that they share with one another, and they're also creating a community. Um, the users of the platform take so much responsibility for making it work. As Andres described, that there's a sense of ownership there that's really critical to building the Scratch community. There's a shared investment in, a shared responsibility for the community guidelines, both in talking about them and also in upholding them and in enforcing them. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and Andres shared with us a really interesting story about how at one point a number of Scratch community members were actually trying to game the system to, to have their posts be the most visible and to um, attract the most um, visits and be the most popular. And the moderators and other community members were actually able to intervene, relying on the community norms that, the, that they had developed to help ensure a diversity of projects being showcased on the homepage. So by doing that, they were able to um, really further cement the core value that they were trying to build together of welcoming a variety of views without letting one view or a few views dominate the space. Um, now, that required actual interventions from real people rather than simply relying on algorithms. So it's, it's time consuming and really labor intensive work, but um, it shows for one thing that it, it's possible to, to accomplish, but also that there is power in creating a social media platform in which the members themselves are not only empowered to, but actually do take responsibility for what they create and for what they're building together. And in a way, it reminds me of um, what we learned from Ben Fink about roadside theater in episode four. When, when people create together and when they um, build something together, they're capable, they're able to break down the barriers and divides that exist between them. Yeah, and of course, this also touches on what we learned in episode two of this podcast about um, the teenagers who were part of the Can We Project in Maine. Young people have so much to contribute in creating space for productive dialogue. And also, it's just such a rich time in their own lives to be learning to engage with other people about um, life in general and, and particularly difficult subjects. Okay, so for listeners who want to learn more about Scratch, the website is scratch.mit.edu. Andres also told us about a similar youth-oriented site called DIY.org, which is worth checking out for people who are interested in what alternative forms of social media and social media platforms can provide that offer maybe a more hopeful or productive form of engaging online. Um, and of course, there's plenty happening online that's targeted more at adults, too. Um, our first episode, um, we interviewed guests from an organization called Living Room Conversations, um, and Living Room Conversations has been offering for some time a platform that allows people to connect virtually from anywhere in the world to, um, to d continue discussing challenging social issues and, and policy. And that's something that feels especially important now as people are trying to maintain community and connection through a time of physical distancing, but want to be able to still talk about the issues that matter most to them. And this might be a good segue to a brief word about our next episode, which will focus on the work that coalitions can do and are doing to promote opportunities to bridge divides. One of the near-term projects that we'll hear about is an effort to design a national week of conversation. It was slated to include mostly live events all over the country during the second week of April, and now plans are being made to migrate the entire event online. So it'll be a fascinating look at not only the power of coalitions, but also some of what we've talked about today thinking of new ways for people to engage online and use technology and social media for good and for bridge building instead of um, as sources of division. As we round out the 10-episode series in our podcast on political divides in America, we're still really interested in hearing from you with your thoughts and questions. Reach out to us if you know of an individual or group who's working to bridge the divide. Send us an email at hnmcp at law.harvard.edu or find us on Twitter at hnmcp. We'd love to hear from you. 
We are grateful for the help and support of our colleagues at the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, especially Tracy Blanchard and Bria Etienne. Thank you to Kate Ellis, our producer, and to the folks at the Harvard Media Production Center where we do our recording. Theme music is made available to us courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions, and this podcast was made possible by a grant from the American Arbitration Association's International Center for Dispute Resolution Foundation. You'll hear us again soon on our next episode. Thanks for listening. Yep, thanks for listening.